Welcome to the Hiraith Magazine Podcast. I'm Sarah Bringhurst Familia, coming to you from Amsterdam. Hiraith is a Welsh word meaning nostalgia for a home that no longer exists or never was. On the podcast, we explore the question, what is home? Whether we move for love, work, refuge, or adventure, many of us are trying to make ourselves at home, far away from the place where we were born. So join us on this journey as we travel around the world in search of home. episode, I speak with Dory Griffin, a professor who lives in Florida, about her research in how popular design reflects social and cultural identity. She talks about her work finding meaning in material as different as maps and the covers of science fiction novels, what it was like to move in as a new homeowner just hours before lockdown, and her resolve to use the fine china. I am here with Dory Griffin, Assistant Professor at the School of Art and Art History at the University of Florida. Dory and I have actually known each other for most of our lives now. We both grew up homeschooled and became pen pals, actual pen pals with pen and paper as teenagers. Strangely, we have never actually met in person. So Dory, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Sarah. It's really exciting to talk to you um, long distance, yet still in person. Yeah, exactly. So to start off, why don't you tell me a little bit about where you're from, your family background, and where you lived growing up? Sure, yeah. So I grew up in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Um, I actually never moved as a child. The home I grew up in, um, my first memories of home, is the home I lived in until I left for graduate school. So I was in one place for quite some time. Um, my parents are still in Chattanooga, um, and I grew up there with my brother and my sister, who are both younger than I am. I always loved saying Chattanooga to myself when I would get your letters. <laughs> yes, it's it's a fun name. Lots of people ask about the Chattanooga Choo Choo song. And indeed, I have been to the Chattanooga Choo Choo and I rode the train when I was there. Ah, that's great. So tell me about some of the other places that uh, you lived once you did leave home and go away to grad school. Sure, yeah. So I got my MFA from actually the University of Florida here in Gainesville, which is where I'm living now. Um, so I lived here in Gainesville for three years. Um, after that, I decided that I wasn't done with school yet. Um, I moved to Phoenix, Arizona and got a PhD in design history. Um, I really loved living in the desert. I was there for four years. Uh, but one of the realities of the academic life is that you don't necessarily get to stay put after you finish your degrees. Um, so after that, I had a couple of shorter term teaching jobs, um, one here in Florida, one back in Chattanooga. Um, I lived for a while in southern Mississippi. 
um, and taught graphic design there. I'm still in touch with some of the students I worked with in Mississippi. They were great students and they're doing wonderful things now. I lived for a while in Athens, Ohio and Southeast Ohio. Um, again, still in touch with some of my students who are wonderful people. Um, I discovered that I'm not really cut out for winter, though. There, There's no hardy Scandinavian stock in my genetic history. I feel relatively confident. Um, so I am loving being back in Florida and hoping to put down roots here, where, again, I have wonderful, wonderful students who are just a joy to work with. So would you say that you think of Florida as home then? Um, I'm not sure I think of it as home yet. I moved here at the beginning of August last year. I moved into an apartment that I was renting and I've moved again locally since. Um, I, I still think of Chattanooga a little bit as home, but I think of Gainesville as potentially home. Once I've been here for a little bit longer, I think it might really start feeling like home. Yeah. So in a way, an aspirational home. That's interesting. Yes. So professionally, you study how visual design participates in constructing place-based histories and culturally specific identities. And your first book, Mapping Wonderlands, which came out a few years ago, looks at maps of the U.S. state of Arizona and also the narratives that those maps construct about its history and landscape and culture. So can you tell us what first drew you to maps as a way of telling stories about a place? Sure, yeah. Uh, one of the things that drew me to them was that I'm horrible at using them. I can get lost almost anywhere. I can still get lost in Chattanooga, and I lived there for the first 23 years of my life. And it's not a vast city. It's a relatively small place. So I've always had a complicated relationship with maps, but at the same time, I think they're really beautiful as visual artifacts. And I think it was that personal connection to thinking about on the one hand, always feeling lost, even when I have a map, and on the other, appreciating the beauty of them, just as aesthetic objects, that started to draw me in. And of course, once I was in, I started uncovering the ways um, that other scholars have written about how we use maps, for instance, to lie, um, what we use maps for as humans, and started thinking about how particularly illustrated maps could tell really powerful stories that in some instances almost start to replace the physical, I hesitate to call them facts, um, but the shared physical experiences of a place. Um, for instance, Phoenix is hot right? Um, almost anyone who goes there will agree that the weather in Phoenix is hot. Um, and yet a lot of illustrated maps of Arizona um, kind of imagine Phoenix as a little bit of a Shangri-La or a Garden of Eden with flowers blooming everywhere, which um, particularly during the period when these maps were made, 
wasn't exactly the case, physically speaking. Um, so I started probing how the stories that we tell ourselves about places um, can be just as powerful in some ways as the physical experience of those places. That is fascinating. So more broadly, your work interrogates how popular visual culture explores global conversations about issues like cross-cultural communication or environmental futures. So talk to me also about travel brochures and the lurid covers of science fiction novels and why we should take seriously what they tell us about ourselves. Sure. So as I spent more time thinking about maps and why I was interested in maps, I discovered that one of the things that really fascinated me was exactly this sense that they were a vehicle for telling ourselves these really powerful stories about identity. Um, and as much as I adore collecting vintage maps and exploring historically situated narratives of place, and as much as some of those narratives still persist, um, and, and the wake of our most recent presidential election here in the United States, I started thinking about ways that my particular specialization could become less academic and perhaps more participatory in immediate dialogues that are part of the way we're thinking about national or global identity now, today, in our immediate surroundings and our immediate social and political context. And a couple of the things that struck me as particularly important um, and have struck so many other scholars and activists as important um, are our environment and the way that we conceptualize our shared humanity relative to migration and immigration and people moving around and seeking homes where they and their families can be safe. Um, and so I decided that those were themes that I could perhaps start usefully exploring. Um, and indeed, I have published a couple of articles, I've done a couple of conference presentations, and I'm looking at hopefully in the near future starting work on another book that will be about the visual rhetoric of immigration, particularly in the United States, um, and particularly how that visual language of 20th century immigration to the United States has informed the way that we are thinking about, talking about, visualizing um, what's happening in our country and in the world today. Well, I look forward to following your research. That sounds very interesting and very topical to what we're living lately. So as you mentioned, you recently got a new job at the University of Florida, which resulted in your much anticipated move to sunny Gainesville, Florida, uh, where you soon bought your very first house, the keys to which you received just as the global pandemic hit. So what was that like going into lockdown in your new house? Frankly, it was quite bizarre. Um, so I've never owned property. Um, and as I thought about trying to um, 
settling Gainesville and beginning to really put down roots and think of a place other than Chattanooga as home, um, I decided that it was probably time to make that move. Um, So I actually ended up buying a condo because I couldn't picture myself climbing about on a roof um, trying to decide if the shingles needed repair or the gutters were clogged. That just wasn't in my my conceptual framework of how my life was going to be workable. Um, So for my 40th birthday, um, I closed on a one-bedroom condo here in Gainesville uh, where my cat and I are extraordinarily happy. Yeah, Um, I moved with the help of... um, two amazing guys from a local moving company, one of whom is a middle school teacher um, as his day job, but was already, of course, um, on furlough because schools had already closed here. Um, Moved in about 13 hours before our stay-at-home shelter-in-place orders took effect, um, which was very exciting had my first set of office hours about five hours later that same afternoon with boxes stacked everywhere. Um, And the next morning, I taught online from the new digs. It was a very strange experience. Um, But yeah, I'm very happy that as I shelter in place, I am in a place that feels more Permanent and less, um, I don't know what a good word for it would even be, less ephemeral, maybe, um, because in a lot of ways there's, there's a sense of safety or comfort in that, particularly when the world is in such a strange, strange moment. That's true. So... Uh, as you said, you live alone or with your ginger cat, Milo, who happens to be the only cat whose account I follow on social media. Uh, so what are some of the challenges and also advantages of that particular household setup during a, basically a global lockdown? Yeah, I reflected a lot on this because sometimes it's lonely. You know, the the cat is not much of a conversationalist. Um, but at the same time, online teaching sort of gave me perspective on that as well because, of course, many of my students were returning to their parents' homes. Um, some of them had very young siblings. One student in particular sometimes told us stories of their kindergarten-aged sibling. Um, So there are definitely pros and cons. I can't quite imagine online crisis mode teaching while trying to also manage, for instance, a kindergartner. Um, Lots of people are doing it, but I'm not sure I can begin to imagine how. So there are definitely benefits to having space that's my own that I can spread out in. As I sit here talking to you, I'm kind of in my online teaching corner. Um, So I, I feel very lucky that I have this little corner office that I've set up 
for myself along my breakfast buffet in my kitchen. Um, and I don't have to clean everything up and put it away so that someone else can use the space to attend first grade digitally, for instance. Um, but at the same time, I, I wish I could get a hug from my family. Yeah, that is quite something to miss. So as a university professor, you have probably had to quite drastically change the way that you interact with your students during this time. So how are you loving all these Zoom meetings? So as a platform, I appreciate Zoom, um, which is the platform that our university actually happens to use. It's definitely a way of keeping in touch and being able to interact with my students in real time, but I've had a lot of empathy and identified a lot with some of the recent articles that social scientists and behavioral scientists are starting to publish about how Zoom is particularly exhausting because our brains are trying to convince us that we can process information as we normally would in a face-to-face -face conversation, but we just can't. And so I have definitely felt the Zoom fatigue very, very, very profoundly, particularly during the early weeks when I was spending 8, 10, 12 hours a day um, trying to both teach and go to a whole bunch of meetings about how we were going to keep teaching. Um, I'm, I'm very proud of my students. They're a wonderful, fabulous group. They've done some amazing work. I was teaching a graduate seminar looking at strategies for building bridges between scholarly writing and the practice of socially engaged design. So um, my grad students are fabulous. And then I was working with a class of sophomore level typography students, many of whom are graphic design certificate students, which means for us that graphic design is something that they do kind of on the side. They're not majors, most of them. Um, but they were a fabulous class and they produced some truly exciting screen-based work. Um, of course, as we pivoted to online instruction, we also decided to rework all of the projects we were going to do for the rest of the semester because we no longer had access to printers and of course to being able to look at physical artifacts in a shared physical space together. So teaching changed very profoundly but I also feel very fortunate because I was working with great students who did amazing things under very trying circumstances. So I did want to ask that as well. How are your students doing and in what ways have they been affected by the pandemic and its response? So it varies. Um, I think like people everywhere, some students have a harder time than others sheltering in place. Those of us who are introverts, I think are at a bit of an advantage right now. I'm definitely an introvert. 
Um, so I'm sure that my extroverted students are feeling profoundly lonely and unfulfilled with their life. Um, but at the same time, I know that I have students who have secured online um, remote work internships over the summer, students who seem genuinely excited about being back in their hometown for the summer and maybe spending time with their families. Um, many teachers, I think, are worried that for many of us, home is a very safe place, but for some people, home is not safe. Home is dangerous, or home is um, a place where you go hungry, or home is a place where there's violence. And so, of course, I worry that statistically, it is likely that some of the students I know are not necessarily safe right now. Um, all concerns about COVID-19 and germs aside. And for all of the teachers I know, that's a really, really profound concern. And sometimes we know what our students are dealing with. Um, we can't necessarily talk about it if we do know. And sometimes we have no idea. And that's a hard place to be in for all of us, I think. I'm sure. Um, some people are prognosticating that this is the beginning of a massive and permanent move online for universities. What would your thoughts be on that possible future? It's easier to move some things online than other things. So I teach graphic design and design history and teaching in the studio is a very embodied experience. Um, that's about sharing space and also being able to share access to physical artifacts, such as printed pages, um, in that shared physical space. So it is indeed possible to teach design online, but it profoundly shifts the way all of those dialogues work, and it also profoundly shifts what we make. So I think it's quite likely that particularly for arts educators, getting back into physical spaces is going to be a top priority. I know that our university is thinking very carefully about strategies for making sure that the classes that really rely on these embodied models of learning are able to move back to campus as quickly as possible. But at the same time, some content and some kinds of learning work well in an online context. Um, they increase access to education for certain populations, people, for instance, who might experience physical challenges, um, going to a physical brick and mortar building on a regular basis might have more access to online educational models. So I, I think it's possible that things will change profoundly, but at the same time, I'm not sure that all education will immediately move online or remain online just because we've had this experience of being forced into that model in an emergency way. 
That makes sense. So speaking of embodied spaces, um, I wanted to ask with your move to your new house to you to tell me about your use the fine china promise that you made to yourself. <laughs> sure, yes. So um, on social media, not long ago, I was starting to post some photos of mostly small decorative objects that various friends and family members have gifted to me over the years. And last summer when I was in Chattanooga, uh, a good friend of mine who I've also known since childhood through um, sort of a, a girl's brunch with a bunch of women um, and we all brought our favorite brunch dish and we had potluck on our hostess's fine china, her, her best dishes. Um, I believe she had inherited them um, from her mom who is still with her but had gifted her these, these china place settings. And we were talking over brunch about living in the moment and embracing where we are right now, even if it's not really what we thought it would look like. Does anybody ever end up with what they thought they were going to get? Um, none of us had. So I, as I have moved into my new home, have been really intentional about using all of these objects that bring me joy that friends have given me family members have given me over the years so that the things that I see and touch and surround myself with every day are things that bring me joy and happy memories and help me to feel connected to people I love people who love me um, even though I'm here by myself with only Milo the cat well, thank you again for being with us, Dory, and I hope that you'll get to enjoy some beautiful Florida weather during your well-deserved semester break. Thank you so much. Yes, the sun is shining, the sky is blue, um, and I am looking forward to a walk in the great outdoors later today. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. And if you have a story you'd like to share, Visit us on the web at hiraithmagazine.com. That's H-I-R-A-E-T-H magazine.com. You can also connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or SoundCloud. The podcast is available to download on iTunes and other podcast platforms. If you like the Hiraith podcast, you can help by sharing it with your friends. And if your podcast platform allows, leaving us a rating. This episode featured music by Maidan and was recorded and produced by me, Sarah Bringhurst Familia, on the canals of Amsterdam.